0: Welcome to Salon Air. I'm Ruth Dickey, Executive Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Salon Air is a podcast of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers of more than 30 years of Seattle arts and lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Salon Air comes from the M.J. Murdoch Charitable Trust. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018 season, featuring talks by Catherine Boo, Soraya Shamali, Zadie Smith, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures dot org. This special Thanksgiving episode features Pulitzer Prize winner Viet Tan Nguyen, author of The Sympathizer and the Refugees, who tells stories about people poised between their devastated homelands and their adopted countries, as well as his own experiences as a refugee. Nguyen joined us at Benaroya Hall in May 2018 for Seattle Arts and Lectures 2017-18 season. I had the pleasure of introducing Nguyen, who was then interviewed by Jamie Ford, the celebrated author of Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Here's a powerful reflection on the role storytellers play in enabling new kinds of imaginations, and on what we remember and what we choose to forget. From Viet Tan Nguyen. To officially open our evening, I'm proud to introduce a student from our Writers in the Schools program, this year, Writers in the Schools is working at 27 area schools in Seattle Children's Hospital to place local, professional, creative writers to inspire over 6,000 kids to write their own poems, stories, and memoirs. Tonight's reader, Weiwei Li, from Nathan Hale High School, where we have yet visited this afternoon, will be reading her poem, Saudade. Please join me in welcoming Weiwei.
1: So doubted. I did not look back. I did not look back past duty-free, closing for the night, customs, security, check-in counters, to see where my father, I thought, would still be standing, the grumpy old bear watching his daughter walk away, before he went out into the black night, got in his black car, and drove home alone. I did not look back until the plane took off, saw the glow of my city, my homeland, rushing away. And by then, it was too late. Since then, I am always half-turned wherever I go, into classrooms turning corners, on metro buses or link trains, walking to school in the soft wash of sun and dew, or headed home with the chatter of a friend at my side and cool evening falling. I keep looking back, but what I'm looking for isn't there, won't be there, cannot possibly be there. I look anyway. Sometimes, a foolish indulgence, when I crest a hill, I stretch toward the sky on the very tips of my toes, peering in the direction of the ocean. If I am tall enough, I think, perhaps I can see all the way home. I never do.
0: Beautiful. Such a gorgeous poem. Thank you, Weiwei. Wei. We'll have copies of her poem at the SAL information table and you can also find it on our blog on the SAL website. And now, the moment we've all been eagerly awaiting. In Viet Tan Nguyen's story, Black Eyed Woman from the Refugees, the narrator speaks to us about the arrival of stories and of ghosts, saying, quote, stories are just things we fabricate nothing more. We search for them in a world beside our own, then leave them here to be found, garments shed by ghosts. This sleight of hand illuminates the heart of Nguyen's writing, the ideas that stories are just fabricated things, nothing more, yet also that stories are everything we search for, the only things that remain of us, the things we leave to be found, the things that give meaning, that stories and writing are the vehicle for making lives visible. His beautiful, nuanced work illuminates the history, identity, and politics of Vietnam, its past and its present, and the refugee experience from an incredible diversity of perspectives. He brings us the young, the old, men and women, straight and queer, living and dead, Viet Thanh Nguyen is the author of five books, including The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2016, the Carnegie Medal for Fiction, and a place on every best book list of 2015. His other works include the nonfiction Nothing Ever Dies, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and the short story collection The Refugees. In his story, I'd Love You to Want Me, a wife loves her fading husband by reading, quote, she would read out loud from the beginning. She would read with measured breath to the very end. She would read as if every letter counted, page by page and word by word. Across fiction and nonfiction and all his haunting work, Viet Tan Nguyen gives us not just this portrait of love, of marriage, and of illness, but indeed of the whole complicated, fraught, and often violent world the stories of forced erasures, and his counteracting narrative's affirming presence. We read them all, gratefully and hungrily, book by book, story by story, page by page, and word by word. Please join me in welcoming the brilliant creator and documenter of worlds, Viet Tan Nguyen.
2: Thank you. Thank you so much for that generous introduction, Ruth. And can we give it up one more time for Wei Wei Li, please? (laughs) I thought she was absolutely incredible. I would have been totally petrified if I was her age on a stage like this. And I just want to extend a special thanks to Weiwei's parents for not crushing her dreams of being a poet. You know, sometimes we we look around, or I look around, and I think there's not enough Asian American writers out there. And yes, it's partly due to structural racism, but mostly it's due to Asian parents. <laughs> uh. <laughs> Asian parents out there, you got to do better. Now, obviously, I'm Asian. I'm also a refugee. And those, those two things are uh, completely wrapped up in my life. And uh, when I go around saying I'm a refugee today, sometimes I feel like maybe I shouldn't. You know, maybe I should say I was a refugee. Because if you look at me now, it seems clear that I've made this transition from refugee to bourgeoisie. <laughs> <laughs> but my first memories actually begin as a refugee. I have no memories of Vietnam, where I was born. But I do remember when we first came to the United States in 1975, fleeing from the end of the Vietnam War—my parents, my 10-year-old brother, and 4-year-old me. And we were settled in one of the four refugee camps that were set up to hold the 130,000 Vietnamese refugees who had fled the country. And we ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap, Pennsylvania. And in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. And one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me. And now I'm the father of a four-year-old, and I can imagine just how painful that must have been for my parents to have their child taken away from them. And I remember how painful it was for me as a child to be taken away. That's where my memories begin. And so I say that I'm a refugee because in some part of my mind, that's where I began. That's how I began telling stories to myself. And of course, it seems urgent today for those of us who are refugees to claim that we are refugees at a moment when this country and many other countries are so deeply set against taking more refugees into, our, into this country and other countries as well. I can't, uh, you know, a part of me though when I think about being a refugee thinks it wasn't all bad because it gave me the necessary emotional damage necessary to become a writer. (laughs) And for me, uh, the experience of being a refugee is also wrapped up completely with war. In most cases, refugees are fleeing from war, and that certainly was the case in my parents' uh, experience. And so uh, the first thing I want to read to you tonight is from this novel, The Sympathizer, which is a war novel, but it's also a refugee novel. And for those of you who haven't read The Sympathizer, First of all, shame on you. Uh, Second of all, it's about a communist spy in the South Vietnamese army in 1975 as Saigon is about to fall or be liberated, depending on your point of view. And his mission is to flee with the remnants of that army to the United States, where he's going to spy on their efforts to take their country back. So he has to become a refugee. And in this first scene, he is in the much more glamorous refugee camp of Camp Pendleton in Southern California, And he's writing to his aunt in Paris, describing what life is like in a refugee camp. If allowed to stay together, I told my aunt, we could have incorporated ourselves into a respectably-sized, self-sufficient colony, a pimple on the buttocks of the American body politic, sufficiently collective to elect our own representative to the Congress and have a voice in our America, a little Saigon as delightful, delirious, and dysfunctional as the original, which was exactly why we were not allowed to stay together but were instead dispersed by bureaucratic fiat. Wherever we found ourselves, we found each other. We did our best to conjure up the culinary staples of our culture, but since we were dependent on Chinese markets, our food had an unacceptably Chinese tinge—another blow in the gauntlet of our humiliation that left us with the sweet and sour taste of unreliable memories just correct enough to evoke the past, just wrong enough to remind us that the past was forever gone—missing, along with the proper variety, subtlety, and complexity, of our universal solvent fish sauce. Oh, fish sauce! How we missed it! How nothing tasted right without it! This pungent, liquid condiment of the darkest sepia hue was much denigrated by foreigners for its supposedly horrendous reek, lending new meaning to the phrase, there's something fishy around here. For we were the fishy ones. We used fish sauce the way Transylvanian villagers wore cloves of garlic to ward off vampires. In our case, to establish a perimeter with those Westerners who could never understand that what was truly fishy was the nauseating stench of cheese. It's not a joke, it's really disgusting. (laughs) What was fermented fish compared to curdled milk? But out of deference to our host, we kept our feelings to ourselves, sitting close to one another on prickly sofas and scratchy carpets, our knees touching under crowded kitchen tables, chewing on dried squid, and the cut of remembrance until our jaws ached. Trading stories heard second and third hand about our scattered countrymen. This was the way we learned of the clan turned into slave labor by a farmer in Modesto, and the naive girl who flew to Spokane to marry her GI sweetheart and was sold to a brothel, and the widower with nine children who went out into a Minnesota winter and lay down in the snow on his back with mouth open until he was buried and frozen, and the regretful refugees on Guam who petitioned to go back to Vietnam never to be heard from again and the devout Buddhist who spanked his young son and was arrested for child abuse in Houston, and the husband who slapped his wife and was jailed for domestic violence in Raleigh, and the men who had escaped but left wives behind in the chaos, and the women who had escaped but left husbands behind, and the children who had escaped without parents and grandparents, and the families missing one, two, three, or more children. Sifting through the dirt, we panned for gold. The story of the baby orphan adopted by a Kansas billionaire. Or the mechanic who bought a lottery ticket in Arlington and became a multi-millionaire. Or the girl elected president of her high school class in Baton Rouge. Or the boy accepted by the University of Washington from Fond du Lac. I'm just kidding. It's actually Harvard in the original. I have to say this because I was rejected from the University of Washington when I applied there. Or the movie star you love so much, Dear aunt, who circled the world from airport to airport, no country letting her in after the fall of Saigon, none of her American movie star friends returning, her desperate phone calls until, with her last dime, she snagged Tippi Hedren, who flew her to Hollywood. So it was that we soaked ourselves in sadness, and we rinsed ourselves with hope, and for all that we believed, almost every rumor we heard, almost all of us refused to believe that our nation was dead." So the Tippi Hedren story is actually a true story. And the movie star was Gip Jin, the most famous uh, South Vietnamese movie star of the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And Tippi Hedren came to Camp Pendleton and took such pity on the Vietnamese refugees that she encountered that she had her personal manicurist come and train some of these women in the arts of manicuring, which is how 40 years later, we Vietnamese people have come to take over 51% of the nail salon industry in this country. (laughs) It's either a pro-refugee story or an anti-refugee story, depending on your point of view. (laughs) Personally, I think it's a pro-refugee story. And uh, when The Sympathizer came out, something happened that I knew was gonna happen, which is that many of the reviews called this book an immigrant book and called me an immigrant writer and I had to go to New York Times and write that that's not true I'm a refugee and this is a refugee novel and it's a war novel and every time I go give a talk I have to keep asserting the same thing because the idea of the immigrant is very strong in American society. I went to give a talk today at Nathan Hale High School and I was told that some of the students who were gonna meet me were refugees So I asked the the whole room full of students, how many of you are refugees? Not a single person raised their hand. I said, how many of you are immigrants? And they started to raise their hand. In other words, we live in a society in which, even now, at a moment of rising xenophobia and anti-immigrant feeling, which is not new in American society—it's been with us from the very beginning—even in this moment, the people who don't like immigrants still like the idea of immigrants. They like the idea of immigrants wanting to come to this country because it proves that we are awesome—the land of the American dream. Refugees are a different case altogether. Refugees are the unwanted where they come from, the unwanted where they go to. And I think that is one of the reasons why some of those students who are refugees today didn't want to raise their hands and be identified as a refugee. And it is exactly for that reason that I want to raise my hand and say, I am a refugee. It's also important because there are some refugees out there who not only don't want to be called refugees anymore, but don't want to let in any more refugees. I'm thinking about some of my Vietnamese brothers and sisters out there, these former refugees who are saying, we were the good refugees. These new refugees from places like Syria, those are the bad refugees. Don't let them in. Well, I grew up in a Vietnamese refugee community in the 1970s and 1980s, and I can tell you there were a lot of bad Vietnamese refugees. (laughs) Welfare fraud, insurance scams, cash-under-the-table economies. I know all about it. We invented the home invasion. The phenomenon of Vietnamese gangsters robbing Vietnamese homes was so prevalent that the San Jose Police Department had to invent that term just for us, but we've forgotten all about that. Instead, we remember people like my older brother who, after being taken away from the family for two years by a sponsor, went on to Harvard, and then just to rub it in, went to Stanford too. (laughs) Which is what you're supposed to do when you're Asian. Anything less is like the Asian F, otherwise known as the B+. (laughs) But we choose to remember people like my brother, people like me, people like all these so-called good refugees, and we forget that in 1975, actually, the majority of Americans did not want to accept Vietnamese refugees, and Cambodian refugees, and Laotian refugees. And I had a very personal experience with that. In 1978, my parents decided to move from Harrisburg to San Jose, California. Thank God. (laughs) And when they were there, They opened perhaps the second Vietnamese grocery store in that city, downtown. And I remember walking down the street in downtown San Jose, near my parents' store, and seeing a sign in another window that said, another American driven out of business by the Vietnamese. And at 10 or 11 years of age, I really didn't know what to make of this sign except to feel that obviously it was directed against people like me and my parents. And I thought, does the person who wrote this sign know that my parents work 12 to 14 hour days every day of the year in this grocery store except Christmas, Easter, and New Year's? Does the person who wrote this sign know that my parents were shot in their store on Christmas Eve? Does this person know what my parents have been through to become the people that they are and to get to this country. And of course, that person did not know that. We were not human beings to this person. We were just Vietnamese, just refugees, just a threat. And then later, I would go to this very elite high school in San Jose that was mostly a white high school, except there were a handful of us who were of Asian descent. We knew we were different. And every day at lunch, we would gather in a corner of the campus, and we would call ourselves the Asian Invasion. (laughs) We didn't even have a term to describe ourselves except this racist term, which evoked a whole history of Asians threatening this country. And of course, I knew by that time that I had come from Vietnam and that I'd been brought here by something called the Vietnam War. And I would spend many decades of my life trying to understand the history of this war, try to make sense out of it, try to understand how it had shaped this country, shaped Vietnamese refugees, shaped Vietnam, and shaped me as well. So I want to share a bit from my book, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam in the Memory of War, where I talk about this. As a gook in the eyes of some, I can testify that being remembered as the other is a dismembering experience, what we can call a disremembering disremembering is not simply the failure to remember. Disremembering is the unethical and paradoxical mode of forgetting at the same time as remembering, or from the perspective of the other who is disremembered, of being simultaneously seen and not seen. Disremembering allows someone to see right through the other an experience rendered so memorably by Ralph Ellison in the opening pages of Invisible Man. His narrator, the titular hero, runs into a white man who refuses to see him. and enraged strikes back to force the white man to see him. Even beaten, however, the white man refuses to see him the way he wishes to be seen. That is because the other's use of physical force may make the other visible, but only to turn him into a target the other must deploy the psychic forces of remembering, imagining, and narrating if the other wishes to transform ways of seeing. Not satisfied with being disremembered, we who are others find that it is up to us to remember ourselves. Having carried ourselves over or been brought over from the other side, we gooks, we goo-goos, we slopes, we dinks, we zipperheads, we slant eyes, we yellow ones, we brown ones, we japs, we chinks, we ragheads, we sand niggers, we orientals, we who cannot be distinguished between ourselves because we all look alike. We know that the condition of our being and our self-representation is that we are both ourselves and others. We are never without identity and never without ideology, whether we like it or not, whether we acknowledge it or not. Those people who believe themselves to be beyond identity and ideology will, sooner or later, charge us with identity and ideology if we dare to commit that most unnatural act of speaking up and out. So I've been speaking up and out. Thank you, thank you. I've been speaking up and out a lot about the Vietnam War, and part of my attempts to understand the Vietnam War are to understand that it is part of a much longer and larger history of war for both Vietnam and the United States. So I'm just gonna talk about the United States because I'm here tonight. For me, when I was growing up in that Vietnamese refugee community, it was clear that even though the war was declared over in 1975, it was not actually over. The war continued for all of these Vietnamese refugees who felt that they had lost everything—their relatives, their properties, their careers, their identities, their country. And I grew up hearing all kinds of Vietnamese stories told by relatives and told by the people of this community that were steeped in rage and anger and bitterness and loss and melancholy. But when they spoke in English to the rest of America, what they would say is, thank you, America, for saving us. Even though in private, some of them would say, America betrayed us. The war wasn't over, just because it was declared to be over. And in traveling around this country and talking to many American audiences, encountering many American veterans, and also Americans who were just here watching the war from afar or protesting, it's clear that for many of these Americans, the war was the defining experience of their generation it's not over for many of them either. And so one of the things I say in the book, Nothing Ever Dies, is that all wars are fought twice. The first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. And it's clear in looking at our history as Americans, we see that Charlottesville happened. The Civil War is not over for Americans 150 or more years after the fact. Why would we expect people who survived the Vietnam War 40 years after the fact to have put the war behind them? And in this Vietnamese refugee community, what was also obvious to me was that many of these people who had been affected by the war were not just soldiers or men, but were women and children and civilians. And I think the United States is not unique in the world that when we hear the word war as Americans, we think of men and soldiers and guns and battles and tanks. And we don't think about civilians and women and refugees, even though all wars Kill civilians and all wars produce refugees. And the Vietnam War was not unique in the history of the 20th century. It was in fact it was actually completely typical for killing more civilians than it did soldiers. And I teach a class on the Vietnam War and my students go out there and they interview survivors of this war. And what they discover is that when they interview American veterans, they find out that some of these American veterans have been through terrible experiences of combat and that a lot of these American veterans have not. They were serving on a ship, or they were guarding a base, they never fired a shot, they were never shot at. But they interview Southeast Asian refugees who have made it to the United States, and they discover that every single one of these refugees has endured a traumatic, terrible experience to get to this country. That, for me, is also a war story, and one that we're reluctant to acknowledge, it's easier for us to imagine war as involving soldiers, much more difficult to imagine war as involving civilians. My teacher, Maxine Hong Kingston, also wrote about the Vietnam War in her book, China Man, with a passage that I will never forget. She had a brother who went to the Vietnam War, sat on a, a Navy ship, never got shot at. And Kingston writes about what it's like to be in the United States at home during this time. And she says, when you open the door of your refrigerator, you're supporting the war effort because the companies that make the plastic that wrap your Wonder Bread and the companies that make the coolant that goes into the refrigerator and the companies that make the refrigerator are all part of the same system that makes Agent Orange and manufactures bombs. That's a war story, too. It's a boring war story, and boring war stories are actually, I think, much more terrifying than war stories about battle—for civilians, anyway because they implicate all of us in what is happening in a military-industrial complex. And growing up in San Jose in the 1970s and 1980s, I was surrounded by the sense that this war hadn't ended for me either, because I kept seeing all these movies about the Vietnam War that America was making at this time. And around 1980, 1981, my parents brought home this new invention called the VCR, and after I watched Star Wars for a dozen times, I found Apocalypse Now, an example of what happens when parents bring home cutting-edge technology and leave their children at home alone with it. So I watched Apocalypse Now, and I was an American. I loved American war movies. I grew up watching American war movies, John Wayne and all of that, and I identified with American soldiers, and in watching Apocalypse Now, I identified with the American soldiers up until the point they killed Vietnamese civilians. And at that moment, I felt myself split in two. Was I the American doing the killing, or was I the Vietnamese being killed? And I don't think I fully realized the impact this movie had on me until about a decade later when I went to college and I recounted this story to a college classroom, and I found myself shaking with rage and anger and disgust and realized that I had been traumatized—not traumatized as badly as refugees or soldiers, but traumatized nevertheless—and it convinced me that this was evidence that stories were powerful. Another American driven out of business by fill-in-the-blank is a powerful story. Movies like Apocalypse Now are powerful stories. And I thought, I can try to be a writer, and I can try to change these stories in my own way. Which is why, when I wrote The Sympathizer, I thought, now's my time to take revenge on Apocalypse Now (laughs) and Hollywood. So my narrator, after he leaves that refugee camp, has to get a job, and one of the jobs that he gets is to become the authenticity consultant on the making of a movie that looks suspiciously like Apocalypse Now, (laughs) but if Francis Ford Coppola's lawyers were to ask, it's not about Apocalypse Now. And in fact, it isn't. Like I said, i I watched almost every movie that Hollywood made about the Vietnam War, which is an exercise I recommend to nobody. And many of them make their appearance in this fictional movie called The Hamlet. So the narrator, the protagonist, my spy, uh, has read The Hamlet* screenplay and sent his notes to the famous director who is known only as the auteur. And here in this scene, he and the auteur are going to discuss The Hamlet. And it's about American Green Berets, who go to the central highlands of Vietnam where their task is to train the local ethnic minorities whom they call Montagnards to defend themselves against communism. My meeting with the auteur had gone on for a while longer, mostly in a more subdued fashion, with me pointing out that the lack of speaking parts for Vietnamese people in a movie set in Vietnam might be interpreted as cultural insensitivity. Do you not think it would be a little more believable, I said, a little more realistic, a little more authentic for a movie set in a certain country for the people in that country to have something to say instead of having your screenplay direct, as it does now, cut to villagers speaking in their own language? Do you think it might not be decent to let them actually say something instead of simply acknowledging that there's some kind of sound coming from their mouths? Could you not even just have them speak a heavily accented English, you know what I mean, ching-chong English, just to pretend that they are speaking in an Asian language that somehow American audiences can strangely understand? The auteur grimaced and said, very interesting, great stuff, loved it, but I had a question. What was it? Oh, Yes how many movies have you made? None. Isn't that right? None. Zero. Zilch. Nada. Nothing. And however you say it in your language. So thank you for telling me how to do my job. Now get the hell out of my house and come back after you've made a movie or two. Maybe then I'll listen to one or two of your cheap ideas. By the way, (laughs) since the book came out, I've actually met quite a few Hollywood people, and none of them dispute this characterization. (laughs) I confess to being angry with the auteur, but was I wrong in being angry? This was especially the case when he acknowledged he did not even know that Montagnard was simply a French catch-all term for the dozens of Highland minorities. What if, I said to him, I wrote a screenplay about the American West and simply called all the natives Indians you want to know whether the cavalry was fighting the Navajo, or Apache, or Comanche, right? Likewise, I would want to know, when you say these people are mountain yards, whether we speak, whether we speak of the Bru, or the Nung, or the Tay. "'Let me tell you a secret,' the otor said. You ready? Here it is. No one gives a shit. He was amused by my wordlessness. To see me without words is like seeing one of those Egyptian felines without hair, a rare and not necessarily desirable occasion. (laughs) How could I be so dense? How could I be so deluded? I naively believed that I could divert the Hollywood organism from its goal, the simultaneous lobotomization and pickpocketing of the world's audiences. Hollywood did not just make horror movie monsters. It was its own horror movie monster smashing me under its foot. I had failed, and the auteur would make the hamlet as he intended, with my countrymen serving merely as raw material for an epic about white men saving good yellow people from bad yellow people. I pitied the French for their naivete in believing they had to visit a country in order to exploit it. Hollywood was much more efficient, imagining the countries it wanted to exploit. I was maddened by my helplessness before the auteur's imagination and machinations. His arrogance marked something new in the world, for this was the first war where the losers would write history instead of the victors. Courtesy of the most efficient propaganda machine ever created, with all due respect, to Joseph Goebbels and the Nazis who never achieved global domination. Hollywood's high priest understood innately the observation of Milton's Satan, that it was better to rule in hell than serve in heaven, better to be villain, loser, or antihero than virtuous extra, so long as one commanded the bright lights of center stage. In this forthcoming Hollywood lay all the Vietnamese of any side would come out poorly, herded into the roles of the poor, the innocent, the evil, or the corrupt. Our fate was not to be merely mute. We were to be struck dumb. Well, when the novel came out, something else happened that I knew was going to happen. Thank you. Something else happened that I knew was gonna happen, which is that in the first major review of the book, which was very positive and I was very thankful for that, but in the second or third line of the review, the reviewer said, Viet is the voice for the voiceless. I was like, no. Have you ever met any Vietnamese people? Been to a Vietnamese household, a Vietnamese restaurant, Vietnam itself? We're really, really loud. (laughs) The problem is not that we're voiceless, it's that we're not heard. And that's a condition that we share with many other minorities and marginalized communities in this country or any other country. And so certainly as a writer, I believe that we need more voices, like way We need more voices. We can never have a shortage of voices. But I'm not under the delusion that somehow being called a voice for the voiceless is a compliment. What it really means is that people would rather hear one voice speak for an entire community because it makes it easier for them. They don't want to listen to the chorus of voices that comes from any community, or in the case of the Vietnamese community, the cacophony of voices of that community. It's easier simply to have one person, the representative. And my interest is not in being a voice for the voiceless. We see today the dangers of people who take too seriously that role for themselves. What I'm interested in is working for justice so that we will have a time when there won't be voiceless people and voiceless communities. That's why I think of myself as a writer, but always as a writer whose work has been made possible the social and political movements and struggles that have gone before to create the conditions for someone like me to write. If there hadn't been an Asian American movement, I would still be the Asian invasion. I would be the Yellow Peril. But instead, I went to Berkeley, stepped foot on that campus as a college student, and was immediately, immediately radicalized. Became an Asian American right away because of the Asian American movement. Created the possibilities of Asian American literature, created a whole lineage of writers that came before me, and then made it possible for my book to emerge and to be read. And so, so much of my work is about counteracting this idea of uh, being a voice for the voiceless. And when it came time to writing my book of short stories, The Refugees, I wanted to ensure that simply because it was a book that was mostly about Vietnamese people, that it wasn't simply one voice. I didn't want to write a whole bunch of stories about a guy who looked exactly like me. Now you go to the Vietnamese community, you go into a Vietnamese family of a dozen people and you're gonna get a dozen different voices. And so in the refugees, it was really important for me to know that after I wrote a story about a Vietnamese man, I would write one about a Vietnamese woman. If I wrote a story about someone who was straight, I wrote a story about someone who was gay. Wrote a story about someone who was young, I wrote about someone who was old. So the refugees is marked by this attempt to at least gesture at the diversity of a Vietnamese community, and because it was a story, a collection of stories about refugees, it's also marked by haunting. Because growing up in that Vietnamese refugee community of the 70s and 80s, I was aware that all of these refugees were haunted by their past. So I want to I just want to read a couple of pages from the beginning of the book, from a story called "Black Eyed Women," in which haunting is very much present. Fame would strike someone usually the kind that healthy-minded people would not wish upon themselves, such as being kidnapped and kept prisoner for years, humiliated in a sex scandal, or surviving something typically fatal. These survivors needed someone to help write their memoirs, and their agents might eventually come across me. At least your name's not on anything, my mother once said to me. When I mentioned that I would not mind being thanked in the acknowledgments, she said, Let me tell you a story. It would be the first time I heard this story, but not the last. In our homeland, she went on, there was a reporter who said the government tortured the people in prison, so the government does to him exactly what he said they did to others. They send him away, and no one ever sees him again. That's what happens to writers who put their names on things. By the time Victor DeVoto chose me, I had resigned myself to being one of those writers whose names did not appear on book covers. His agent had given him a book that I had ghostwritten. It is a author the father of a boy who had shot and killed several people at his school. I identify with the father's guilt, Victor said to me. He was the sole survivor of an airplane crash, 173 others having perished, including his wife and children. What was left of him appeared on all the talk shows, his body there, but not much else. The voice was a soft monotone and the eyes on the occasions they looked up seemed to hold within them the silhouettes of mournful people. His publisher said that it was urgent that he finish his story while audiences still remembered the tragedy, and this was my preoccupation on the day my dead brother returned to me. My mother woke me while it was still dark outside and said, "'Don't be afraid.' Through my open door, the light from the hallway stung. Why would I be afraid? When she said my brother's name, I did not think of my brother. He had died long ago. I closed my eyes and said I did not know anyone by that name. But she persisted. He's here to see us, she said, stripping off my covers and tugging at me until I rose, eyes half shut. She was 63, moderately forgetful. And when she led me to the living room and cried out, I was not surprised. He was right here, she said kneeling by her floral armchair as she felt the carpet. It's wet! She crawled to the front door in her cotton pajamas, following the trail. When I touched the carpet, it was damp. For a moment, I twitched in belief, and the silence of the house at four in the morning felt ominous. Then I noticed the sound of rainwater in the gutters, and the fear that had gripped my neck relaxed its hold. My mother must have opened the door, gotten drenched, then come back inside. I knelt by her as she crouched next to the door, her hand on the knob, and said, You're imagining things. I know what I saw. Brushing my hand off her shoulder, she stood up, anger illuminating her dark eyes. He walked. He talked. He wanted to see you. Then where is he, Matt? I don't see anyone. Of course you don't, she sighed, as if I were the one, unable to grasp the obvious. He's a ghost, isn't he? So when I was growing up, eventually, and, you know, as a Vietnamese refugee in that Vietnamese refugee community, and, and knowing that, that we were haunted by this past, by literal ghosts and figurative ghosts, eventually at some point it occurred to me that we weren't the only ones who were haunted. This country was haunted. But that even more than that, maybe we were the ones doing the haunting of this country. Right? Because when Americans say the word Vietnam, They really mean the Vietnam War. And when they say the Vietnam War, they really mean the American War, that is, what the war meant to Americans. And, of course, 58,000-plus American soldiers died during that war, and that's a tragedy. But three million Vietnamese people died during that war, and three million Cambodians and Laotians died during the years of the war and afterwards. And I'm pretty sure most Americans have no idea the war was even fought in Laos and Cambodia, much less have their minds wrapped around this figure of six million dead. And when you go to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., as many of you probably have, you'll see those 58,000 names on that black wall, but you won't see the six million names of the Vietnamese and the Cambodians and the Lotians. And the reality is you will never see those six million names because those countries don't have the ability to remember all those names, unlike this country. And I had a personal, a very small personal experience that reminds me of this idea that American memory is made possible by the forgetting of Southeast Asians by what happened to my parents' store. So downtown San Jose in the 1970s and 1980s was a very rough place. Despite what that sign said, no, nope, not too many people wanted to open businesses in downtown San Jose during that time, except for Vietnamese refugees. And at the peak in the 1990s or so, there were 30 or 40 or more Vietnamese businesses in downtown San Jose. And City Hall really couldn't seem to have cared less for downtown San Jose until something called Silicon Valley happened. Then all this tax revenue started to come into the city and City Hall thought, well, wouldn't it be great if we had a new city hall that reflected the new San Jose, guess where they built it? Not on my parents' store, but directly across the street from my parents' store. And the city forced my parents to sell their property, and they forced all those other Vietnamese business people to sell their properties as well. And my parents learned something new in their long process of Americanization they learned how to sue. <laughs> as they should have because the city was offering pennies on the dollar, but it it wasn't really about the money. It wasn't really about the money. After the city took my parents' door, I was so upset, and it wasn't about the money. It was about the fact that this was the place where my parents had shed their sweat and their blood and that they had sacrificed themselves so much that they couldn't spend time with me or my brother so that they could take care of us and give us the Vietnamese-American dream. It was painful to think that this legacy of theirs had been taken away. So for years and years and years afterwards, when I would come back to downtown San Jose, I would always circle around that portion of East Santa Clara Street because I didn't want to see the new city hall, and I didn't want to see the parking garage that had been built on my parents' property. So that continued for years until something called the Pulitzer Prize happened. And then City Hall thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to invite Viet back to City Hall and give him a commendation? (laughs) (laughs) Always be careful about inviting writers to come say something. So I went to City Hall, I took the prize from my classmate who was actually actually the mayor of San Jose. And then I told City Hall the same story I'm telling you. But, before I went into City Hall, I parked my car beneath City Hall, took the elevator up to street level, and got out of the garage and turned to look across the street to where my parents' store had been, expecting to see that parking garage. And I realized that I had been wrong this entire time. There was no parking garage, it was just a parking lot. And it was only a quarter filled with cars and it reminded me of a line from the sympathizer about how america's greatest architectural contribution to the world is the parking lot <laughs> and i realized that city hall preferred to look out onto an empty parking lot rather than to look out onto a vietnamese mom and pop grocery store and if you go to downtown san jose today you don't see my parents store you don't see any of those Vietnamese businesses. There will be no signs. There will be no memorials. There will be no plaques to acknowledge that these stores had ever existed. In my mind, we haunt that landscape. In my mind, the forgetting of these Vietnamese people enables this new San Jose to arise. And in my mind, this is one of the reasons why I became a writer. Because if I didn't write these stories, All of this would be forgotten. And as a matter of fact, I wrote one short story that was autobiographical, and it was about my parents' grocery store. And then when The Refugees was translated into Vietnamese this year, the Vietnamese government censored just one short story from the book, and it was the story about my parents' grocery store. So we had been erased in San Jose. We have been erased in Vietnam, and what's left are the stories. So I want to end with one last scene from *The Sympathizer*, and I realize that maybe I've painted a rather bleak picture of Vietnamese refugee life. But one thing you got to know about people from South Vietnam—we really like to have a good time. So true story: After the Vietnamese refugees left Camp Pendleton, one of the first things they did was to open a nightclub in Los Angeles. This is the setting for this last scene. As the protagonist, the sympathizer, goes to this nightclub and falls in love with the one woman he should not fall in love with, the daughter of his boss, the general. Now known by just one name, like John, Paul, George, Ringo, and Mary, because I'm Catholic, Lana stepped on stage, clad in a red velvet bustier, a leopard print miniskirt black lace gloves, and thigh-high leather boots with stiletto heels. My heart would have paused at the boots, the heels, or the flat, smooth slice of her belly, naked in between miniskirt and bustier. But the combination of all three arrested my heart altogether and beat it with the vigor of a Los Angeles police squad. (laughs) They don't laugh about that in L.A. It's a little too close to reality. Pouring cognac over my heart, freed it, but thus drenched, it was easily flambayed by her torch song. She turned on the heat with her first number, the unexpected, I'd love you to want me, which I had heard before, sung only by men. I'd love you to want me was the theme song of the bachelors and unhappily married males of my generation, whether in the English original or the equally superb French and Vietnamese renditions. What the song expressed so perfectly from lyric to melody was unrequited love. And we men of the South love nothing more than unrequited love. Cracked hearts are primary weakness after cigarettes, coffee, and cognac. Listening to Lana sing, all I wanted was to immolate myself in a night with her to remember forever and ever. Every man in the room shared my emotion as we watched her do no more than sway at the microphone, her voice enough to move the audience, or rather, to still us. Nobody talked, and nobody stirred, except to raise a cigarette or a glass, an utter concentration not broken for her next, slightly more upbeat number, Bang Bang, My Baby Shot Me Down. Lana's version of Bang Bang layered English with French and Vietnamese. The last line of the French version echoed Pham Zui's Vietnamese version, we will never forget. In the pantheon of classic pop songs from Saigon, this tricolor rendition was one of the most memorable, masterfully weaving together love and violence in the enigmatic story of two lovers who, regardless of having known each other since childhood or because of knowing each other since childhood, shoot each other down. Bang, bang! was a sound of memory's pistol firing into our heads. For we could not forget love. We could not forget war. We could not forget lovers. We could not forget enemies. We could not forget home. And we could not forget Saigon. We could not forget the caramel flavor of iced coffee with coarse sugar, the bowls of noodle soup eaten while squatting on the sidewalk, the strumming of a friend's guitar while we swayed on hammocks under coconut trees, the working working men who slept in their clothes on the streets kept warm only by the memories of their families, the refugees who slept on every sidewalk of every city, the sweetness and firmness of a mango plucked fresh from its tree, the girls who refused to talk to us and who we only pined for more, the men who had died or disappeared, the streets and homes blown away by bombshells, the shadows cast by candlelight on the walls of waddled huts, The barking of a hungry dog in an abandoned village. The sight and sound of orphans howling by the dead bodies of their mothers and fathers. The stickiness of one's shirt by afternoon. The stickiness of one's lover by the end of lovemaking. The stickiness of our situations. And while the list could go on and on and on, the point was simply this. The most important thing we could never forget was that we could never forget. Thank you, Seattle. Jamie Ford, ladies and gentlemen.
3: I know some cards are out there for you to write your questions and those will be gathered and brought up here and we'll try to get through as many of those as possible. But in the meantime, you're all mine. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, I, and I have some questions. And I love that you read that passage with the auteur because um, my wife is in the audience and when I read that, I stopped to read that to her because it was so biting and it was so true. And so my question is, I'm guessing that The Sympathizer has been optioned for film, or at least producers have come sniffing around, and how do you feel about that? If there's a little bit you could share with us about that.
2: Okay, well the preface to this story is that when we sent The Sympathizer out for auction to 14 editors, it was rejected by 13 out of 14 editors. (laughs) And the 14th editor who bought it was English. And he was also a mixed race, as it turned out. So the, the the preface, the reason why it's a preface to this story is, I sold it to Canadian, rather than an American, because I think that I think that there maybe I don't know maybe Americans, many Americans still have their hangups about the Vietnam War, uh, and I think would have a hard time trying to understand what this novel is doing, you know. And so there was actually a moment where you know I was I I, I met a producer who I really liked, and she was you know a, uh, American and uh, we were on the same page about the politics of representation and all of that, getting Asian-Americans before and behind the camera and all that, so I said, good, good, go and try to get this thing sold, and then after a long time she came back and she said, well, for the budget we're talking about, we can't do this unless we get somebody like Keanu Reeves. I was like, (laughs) I was like, you know, and, and we were talking about a TV show, premium TV show at that, premium cable TV show at that point, and, you know, we were comparing it to, like, Narcos for the same budget, million, 30 or 40 million dollars per year. And I thought, if you've seen Narcos, it's a great show, but there's nobody famous in it. So you can get 30 to 40 million dollars to make Narcos, but you can't do it for something involving Asians unless it involves Keanu Reeves. Wow. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I... I, I...
3: It it echoes some conversations I had with producers where they said, how do we mitigate the financial risk without a white male lead? And I guess Keanu sort of stretches that rubber band in their minds a little bit, wow. Um, Are you worried at all about how they would treat the source material, because it's so personal and it's so different from the American canon of cinema and how they've treated the Vietnam War?
2: I mean, that was one of my major preoccupations, you know, because again, I think that whole legacy of how Hollywood has represented the Vietnam War is so strong, and these filmmakers have been raised in that culture, they've been steeped in that culture, and that's one of the reasons why I thought it would be better as a premium cable TV series, because when I wrote The Sympathizer, actually, I, I, I wrote it from 2011 to 2013, and I had not watched TV for a decade before that, you know, I was too busy. But during 2011 to 2013, I had a lot of free time on my hands. And so I caught up on all the TV viewings. I watched The Sopranos and Mad Men and The Wire and all that kind of stuff. And that's why, as my English editor noted, all the chapters are the same length in your book. <laughs> because I was, I was so deeply influenced by serial TV. you know. Uh, so I, I just felt that serial TV would have more capacity for trying to deal with some of these complexities because they would have more time. And if it was a two and a half hour movie or something, how would they try to deal with all of that? I have no idea.
3: There's a film coming out in August called Crazy Rich Asians based on the novel, and I've been told that if that is a smash, then projects like yours will be greenlit all the way. But if it's not a success, if it's a financial failure, that will be used as a bludgeon to keep films like that from being produced. Um, How does that make you feel... (laughs) As an artist, as someone who you know you would like to see your work translated to the screen, and yet we're, we're in this culture where if you bring up Asian American films, the answer is, oh, there was *The Joy Luck Club*. You see, that was 25 years ago. Um, Going to talk about that a little bit.
2: Well, I was thinking of *The Joy Luck Club* because *The Joy Luck Club* the novel was a huge success, as, as, as good as, or maybe more popular than Crazy Rich Asians, and the movie was quite popular, and yet we didn't see a breakthrough, right? So I'm a little skeptical that even if, okay, we, we're in a different time period, you know, so maybe if Crazy Rich Asians is a blockbuster, yes, there'll be more roles for the characters, for the actors in this, in this movie, and I, and I really, really hope so. But the whole idea that, you know, our success in terms of movie representation is hinging on one movie, just testifies to how unequal the landscape actually is. You know, because you can be a mediocre white male director and make a bomb and still get another opportunity to make a gigantic blockbuster movie. But if you're Asian, you can't. You know, and it just reminds me that, you know, one of the differences between being a, a part of a majority and a part of a minority in, in, in any society, is, regardless of how you define majority or minority, racially or otherwise, is that when you're a part of the majority, almost all the stories are about you. And you take that for granted. It's, a, it's privilege. But when you're a part of the minority, almost none of the stories are about you. And when you do have a story that's about you, then tremendous weight is placed on that, both on the part of your minority community and on the part of other everybody else looking at this, which is exactly what's happening with Crazy Rich Asians. Um, you know, speaking about
3: um, a minority community, how has your work been- been accepted in the
2: Vietnamese American community? Well, I think when, for example, The Sympathizer came out, you know, it got a lot of positive reviews in, in the American media, and so then some Vietnamese Americans were interested in it, and, but most of the reaction was, eh, he's a writer. Why is he not a doctor, you know, <laughs> like my brother? <laughs> but then something called the Pulitzer Prize happened. So here I'll tell you a story, you know, I was uh, actually on the road when um, the Pulitzer announcement was made, and of course it was very shocking, right, but I never called home to tell my parents about it. The thought literally never crossed my mind, because I thought, I'm Asian, supposed to win the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, (laughs) That's true, you know. Uh, So then two days later, I'm still on the road, my dad calls me, very unemotional man, calls me. His voice is shaking with happiness. And he says, the relatives in Vietnam called, you won the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) So it's very weird, you know, because uh, all these Vietnamese who could care less about literature are like, well, he won the Pulitzer Prize, therefore, we'll we'll claim him. He's back, he's back in the racial draft, you know. Uh, know, Yes, he was a professor, yes, he was a writer, but the Pulitzer Prize trumps everything. So that's basically the reaction.
3: Gotcha, I love that. Um, Speaking about family, when I write things that deal with the Chinese-American experience, I live in fear of my relatives. Because I don't know about your relatives, mine are super honest. So I can walk in at Thanksgiving and they're just like, you got fat! Like, thank you, I appreciate that. Um, My Chinese aunties will just tell me everything I got wrong. So did you have that
2: experience in your own family? No. (laughs) Uh, you know, I think what happened was, for example, there was an early moment, uh, well before The Refugees was published, where one of the stories uh, had been published separately and translated into Vietnamese. And that story is The Other Man, which is about a Vietnamese refugee who comes to San Francisco in 1975 and discovers that he's gay. So it was translated into Vietnamese, so I thought, okay, I'm going to. I went home and I gave my parents this story in Vietnamese so they could read it, and I never heard about it again. You know? And so I, I think that you know, my, my, my dad has told me he started to read some of my books you know, after, the, after the Pulitzer Prize, of course. Um, but so far he hasn't had anything negative to say. I think, again, the Pulitzer Prize trumps everything. I mean, it's like the nuclear option, right? What are you gonna say to somebody who has that? Okay, I, I will make one exception, not my family, but I, I knew that probably the harshest reactions to this book would probably come from American veterans and from Vietnamese Americans. And it's true. You know, the the hate mail that I've gotten has often been from American veterans, and the worst reviews of this book have been by Vietnamese Americans. That that
3: was sort of leading into my next question. Um, I I was asked to write a guest editorial about uh, Syrian refugees, and I did, and, you know, most people appreciated it, but I did get the straight email that would be like, I hope refugees rape your family. How do you deal with the haters? Well,
2: I'll give you two examples. So, um, uh, when The Sympathizer came out, I published an op-ed in the New York Times about the 40th anniversary of the end of the Vietnam War, talked about my, my family's experience, and you know, uh, I, was, I was critical about, of the United States, just like I was, I was critical in The Sympathizer. You know, with The Sympathizer, I really set out to offend everybody, except the Pulitzer Prize Committee. Okay. So, in this New York Times op-ed, I was doing some of the same critical stuff, and so I got this, this letter uh, by an American veteran, and, and you know, he said basically, you know we sacrificed for you. How dare you say anything critical about, about us? Go back to Vietnam. Very angry letter. So I wrote him a response, and I said, look, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I can tell that you're still, you're really, really angry, but it seems to me that the anger is, is, is affecting you more than it is me. Maybe you should let go of your anger. And then he wrote me back a letter that was even angrier than the first one. You know? So for a long time, I didn't respond to these kinds of letters. But then a few days ago, I was interviewed on Democracy Now and uh, saying my typical you know, left-wing crazy stuff. And uh, I got an email from somebody from California. And it was just like, full of hatred and insults and name-calling and saying, how dare you characterize white people this way and this is why Trump won and this is why the Democrats lost, etc. And I just published an op-ed in the Washington Post about you know, opening the canon, and so I just wrote him one, a one-line email and said, you're really gonna love this, and I included the, the Washington Post op-ed, and then he wrote me back a really long email that was civil, and he actually engaged with the op-ed. He didn't agree with everything, but it was, it was like, okay, I agree with this, I don't agree with this, I appreciate your point of view, and I thought, this is a more optimistic thing that had happened. And it convinced me that maybe, you know, we can reach out to people and initiate conversations. won't always work, but sometimes it will. And I have to keep trying to do that. I have a lot of
3: audience questions. Thank you for your questions. Um, the first question is, why did the Vietnamese government prohibit that one short story,
2: the one that was censored? I think it was because um, half of the plot was autobiographical, which is about the grocery store and so on, which you probably wouldn't have got the story censored, but the other half was fictional and inspired by something my mother told me. And she had told me that, um, you know, in basically 1970s and 1980s, anti-communist feeling was really strong in the Vietnamese community, it still is, and, you know, there were, there were uh, people raising funds for the anti-communist cause, which I talk about in The Sympathizer. And this woman had come to my parents' door, and said, basically, you know, she said, "Give us money for this cause, or we're gonna we're gonna say that you guys sympathize with the communists." So I, that that stayed in my head. And so, the fictional part of the story is, who is this woman? And when we encounter her, her in the short story, we find out that, you know, the reason for her bitterness is because. She has lost her husband and her son in the war. Uh, the communists uh, you know, destroyed their, their, their graveyard, which really did happen, and she has a lot of bad things to say about communists, and I think that's why that story was taken out.
3: Thank you. Um, this question is, any advice for young Asian American writers, the next generation of writers? Ignore
2: whatever I have to say. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's true, it's like, you know, I, 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 it's. it's I, I, I think it's awesome if you're an Asian American writer, go out and do it, and you have the benefit of, or the burden, benefit or the burden, of a whole Asian American literary lineage that now precedes you. And it's a benefit because now you're not alone. But it's a burden because there will be, when Amy Tan came out for example, I know that for years and years afterwards, any Asian American woman writer who had, who had a book was being asked by her publisher, is it like the Joy Luck Club? Is it about mothers and daughters? As if that's the only way they could make sense out of things. And I'm sure that after you know, The Sympathizer, there must be young Vietnamese American writers getting this question, is it about the Vietnam War? Is it like the sympathizer? And I'm like, God, that's, that's a really screwed up question. you know. And that's why I mean, ignore me. You know, uh, One of the great things about having a new generation of writers is that they come from a completely different set of experiences that I will have no comprehension of. I, come of. I come from the 1.5 generation, born somewhere else, but raised here, which means that I'm haunted by the past for better and for worse, I can't let go of it. And so I had to write about the Vietnam War. I hope that for the, uh, the generation of Vietnamese Americans or Asian Americans born here in the second or third generation, that if they want to write about the past or write about war or write about Asia, they have the freedom to do so. And if they want to write about something like fairies and pirates, they should go ahead and do so, which is what a lot of them are doing. Um,
3: can you share any information about a planned sequel to The Sympathizer?
2: Well, uh, I'm this, halfway there, into it. Really? Yeah. Um, so the sequel to The Sympathizer is, uh, well, let me, let me backtrack a little bit. When I ended The Sympathizer, and I, I'm going to give a little bit away of the ending, the narrator lives, okay? Um, but he doesn't go to the United States, which is where I think a lot of people who, who read the book think that he goes to, even though there's nothing at the end of the book that says that. And I think the reason why a lot of people think so is because if you're fleeing from a communist country, where else would you go but America? And I think that I I knew that that was the expectation, that's why I refused to put that into the book, and that's probably one of the reasons why 13 out of 14 editors rejected it, because the book did not do what it was supposed to do, which is affirm the American dream. So in the sequel to The Sympathizer, he goes to um, France, because he's half French. His father's a Catholic priest. I wanted to engage with French colonialism and that side of his, of his heritage and also give myself a reason to go to Paris many more times.
3: Nice. Um, yeah. uh, th- this is a bit of a, of a heavy question. Um, and, and, and this deals with uh, really the response to the sexual assault and misconduct allegations against uh, Junot and, and Sherman. Um, I mean, what, what is your reaction to that? And also, you know, how do we separate the, the artist from the art?
2: How do we separate the artist from the art? Um, you know, we were having this conversation backstage, and, and uh, you know, someone like Sherman Alexie, like, when I read his short story, this is what it means to say Phoenix, Arizona, it was about 1994 or so, that blew me away. I totally wanted to write like Sherman Alexie, and admired his work deeply, and with Juno Diaz, with Drown, and the brief life of uh, life, uh, life of Oscar. Wilde," wow, I thought this guy's the real deal, and I still think they're the real deal. I'm still going to read their work, and uh, I'll probably read it read it again with a, with a different perspective. But I think that in terms of what these the, what these charges and a lot, and I believe them to be to be true. What they they indicate are a few things to me. Number one is that it's very obvious. That the literary landscape, like every other landscape in this country, is not equal for men and women. Right? We have to recognize that. And that these allegations, these charges, mean that people have, women have been damaged by these charges. Women writers in, in particular, women's careers have been stunted, women's visibility has been overshadowed by male writers, not just Sherman and Juno, but by many, many other male writers too. And that, that has to that has to be addressed. First and foremost by male writers as well. Um, And then and I know I know women who have had personal encounters and who have told me about them, and so I believe them. Um, and, And it's one of the reasons why I made that statement, you know, that we shouldn't believe in voices for the voiceless. Because when we elevate people into these situations, it's unfair to the communities that they supposedly represent. It's unfair to them too, because why are we putting this burden on them? Just the same reason, why are we putting this burden on crazy rich Asians? It's unfair to that movie, to those actors, to those filmmakers. It's unfair to these voices for the voiceless. And uh, you know, if, you haven't read, if you haven't read um nehisi Coates' new essay on Kanye West, he gets at this. He's looking at, he's looking at Kanye West and he's basically saying, how has he been so screwed up by his celebrity? And then Tallahassee Coates reflects on his own celebrity after "Between the world and me," and talks about how bewildering that whole experience is. And it is bewildering I've only had a smidgen of the success that Tallahassee Coates has had, and it hasn't gone to my head, but I've had to actively, you know, think, don't let it go to your head. But I can only imagine what like, the degree of success that Sherman has had, or Juno has had, or Tennesseeassee Coates has had, or God forbid Kanye West has had, it can really screw with you. And it, we shouldn't put people in that situation. We should have more voices, more writers, including many more women writers. But even when we have more women writers, we should not make them into the voices for the voiceless either.
3: This is from a a fellow Vietnamese refugee and a mother to a uh, 13-year-old and a 9-year-old, and the question is, as a parent, how do you reconcile and teach your past to your own child? What's your plan
2: there? Well, My son is five years old, almost five years old, and, uh, yes, it's very much on my mind uh, how to treat, how to tell him about the the past, you know, um, especially when he started going to school and, and meeting other kids and started getting exposed to the kinds of things that kids are talking about even when they're two or three years old in preschool. And, um, uh, you know, so, for example, you know, he came, you know, When he was three, I taught him a new word because he'd come home talking about Thanksgiving. So I said to him, do you know what Thanksgiving means? And he said, genocide? (laughs) Half this room is going, that's an oversimplification of history. (laughs) Pilgrims and Indians is an oversimplification of history and it's being taught to my son, it's being taught to pretty much every kid in this country, and that oversimplification of history will probably never be corrected in the education of most of these people. So I'm fine with oversimplifying history in response to that, because we'll get to the real stuff later. You know? But um, you know, We as parents have to actively take a role in both the education of our children and the moral education of our children too. So my son, you know, he's a a typical kid. He, For example, he loves Legos. Loves Legos. But I will not always give him Legos. And when I don't, and I ask him, do you know why daddy's not getting you these Legos? And he'll say, because you're a refugee? (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. I've told him often enough about all the things I didn't have when I was a kid. You know, By the time he was three, he had three birthday parties. And I said, that's two more than I ever got from my parents. Okay, so he, he's grown up already with the sense that mommy and daddy had really deprived childhoods because they were refugees, and that's right. You know, he has more books and more toys now than I've ever had you know, before I was able to buy my own books and my own toys. So that's how you educate it. You know, it's like, yeah, no, you don't have to like, go out there and, and reveal to them all the horrible things that, that have happened to your family, our families, for example, because my, wife, uh, my wife's family is a refugee family too, but you have to understand that kids are being exposed to all kinds of stupid and terrible, misogynistic, racist, imperialistic, militaristic things out there. They're already learning how to like, shoot guns and play all kinds of terrible games and, and learning how to be you know boys and, and, and being macho and all this kind of stuff. It's not too early to talk to them about refugees.
3: So, so when can we expect your book on parenting? <laughs> <laughs> Um,
2: I think my son will write that book at some point.
3: (laughs) I like that. Um, This is, is, uh, in in any gathering like this, there are are always people here who are writers, whether they're writers of poetry or prose or song lyrics or screenplays. Um, And the question is, do you share a little bit about your writing process? It's a very vague question, but uh, I'm sure you would have a a lovely answer for us.
2: Uh, Well, I think the, the really important parts of my writing process have been Um, persistence and the ability to withstand rejection and obscurity (laughs) Uh, because, you know, for example, the refugees, that took 17 years to write that book and you will probably read it in three or four hours. And it was 17 years mostly of misery. (laughs) And so I had to learn how to endure all of that. And, uh, And I think I was helped in my endurance because I'm a Catholic and we like to suffer. But, um, you know, recently uh, I, I, I had to get an accountant because my, my, my finances got more complex. And he, and he said, okay, I want you to sit down and count up all the hours that you spent doing your research and your writing. So I did, and it really, you know, came out to be something like 10,000 hours, you know, which is what Malcolm Gladwell says you need to do to become an expert in something. And I did those 10,000 hours over like 20 years. And I think that's, that's, that's my method. You know, you can do it in five years or 10 years or 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, but you gotta do it. There's no replacement for it. So when, I, when, I, when I, I, I did not have the luxury of being a full-time writer. So as a professor, I would write during those parts of the semester when I wasn't grading and I would write during the summer breaks. And then when it came time to have you know, a sabbatical or a year off, then I would write every day. And the, the Sympathizer was written during a very magical time in my life where I got two years off and I wrote every day for four hours a day. And that was the writing process. You know. But uh, I, I was ready for that ideal moment because I had spent all this other time just writing in the cracks of whatever moments that I had, and most of us who are writers don't have the luxury, you know, of getting some nice room with a beautiful view in Paris, you know, and... Mine is in Tuscany. Yeah, we're in Tuscany, uh, you know, we don't have that luxury, we've got to write whenever we have the time to do it. Um, I I
3: appreciate the questions. I wish we had time to get through all of them. This will be the last question, and I've I've combined two of them here. And the questions are, what were you reading at the age of 12, and how did it influence you as a person and as a writer, and what are you reading
2: currently? Okay, Um, when I was 12, I was reading a lot of stuff. You know, and thank God for the San Jose Public Library. Thank God. For librarians, <laughs> because there are no borders in libraries—or at least in the libraries that I went to when I was growing up. Uh, you know, I—you know—I of course my parents were never home; they were always working. So by 12 years old, I knew how to take the bus by myself to the library and get a backpack full of books, and and that would sustain me for the entire week. And there were no borders, so I could easily go for meeting—you know, Tan Tan, Tin Tin. For example, which was a huge favorite of mine when I was probably around 12 or something, to softcore pornography, uh, because that was right over in the other section. <laughs> a lot of, I'm serious, softcore pornography. I learned that probably explains a lot about me. Um, <laughs> but I'll give you, uh, you know, I will give you one example uh, of a book that I read when I was probably around 12 years old. You know, uh, I was a war fanatic. I really loved war books. I read All Quiet on the Western Front when I was, when I was about 12 in the sixth grade, and I also read, you know, Larry Heinemann's Close Quarters. Um, which, if you don't know that book, you know, it actually it actually, I think won one of the major book awards that year, um, when it came out in the late '70s, and, all, and Larry Heineman was in the same unit as Oliver Stone, fought in the same big climactic battle that's in the platoon. But the climax in Heineman 's novel is not the battle. That's the, that's the aftermath, the climax. And just to set up the novel, it's about a young American guy, nice average guy, you know, absolutely typical teenager, goes to Vietnam as a, as a soldier and within 10 pages becomes a killer. And the whole novel is written from his point of view. And the climax of the novel is when he and his his squad mates rape a Vietnamese woman. And I read that and I was just like, I was completely scarred by that experience. I was not ready for it at 12 years old. And uh, for years and years afterwards, I hated Larry Heineman, I hated that novel, because I thought this, just as that moment, just like Apocalypse Now, represents, you know, what we as Vietnamese people are in the American imagination. We're there to be shot and killed and raped. That's all. That's all we function for in the American imagination. And so then, when I wrote The Sympathizer, I went back and I looked at a whole lot of books that um, that I wanted to count as influences or that had influenced me negatively or positively. And so I reread Larry Heinemann's Close Quarters, and I realized that Larry Heinemann was right. You know, because I think his aim in that novel was that he was gonna talk about this war that was poorly understood by a lot of Americans who had never been to this war. And he was writing from the perspective of someone who was there as a sole combat soldier. And he wanted to make sure that anybody who read this book and had any illusions about American soldiers would be stripped of those illusions. And what I wanted when I was 12 was someone in that book to, 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 to say, this is wrong. This should not be happening. I wanted an editorial voice. I wanted a sentimental voice, a moralistic voice, and there's none of that in his book. So Larry Heineman was not gonna give his readers a way out. He wanted to show them just how horrible this situation was, both for the, the people who are being raped and the soldiers who have been turned into murderers and rapists, right? And so when I wrote The Sympathizer, I thought, I, I also have to be brave enough to be able to not give readers a way out by the end of the book. And for some readers, the end of the book is a very uncomfortable experience, um, and that's the way it should be. You know, I mean, sometimes we read literature because we want to be taken away. We want to have pleasure. We want to have escape. I do that too. But sometimes we need literature to show us that there's, there's no way out at a certain moment. But if we confront that, then there may be a way out. Right? Uh, the book I'm reading now, and that I will blurb, is Sharmila Sen's "Not Quite Not White." Um, Sharmila Sen is a uh, you know former. She's like a model minority success story. She's worse than my brother. You know, she came over here when she was 12, went to Harvard at 18, blah blah blah, became a Harvard professor at 28. Who cares? You know, uh, <laughs> good for her. Good for her. But in the book, it's a very interesting book because she recounts how as a South Asian, as an Indian immigrant to this country, to, to Boston, you know, she learned how to pass for white. She learned how to shed her Indianness and become the person that did not make white people uncomfortable. And the book is about how she realized that this was happening and she decided that ultimate, and she, she shows how this experience is actually really debilitating. When you have to walk around with a smile on your face all the time, when you're a minority, even though you don't want to smile, when you want to constantly placate white people um, and explain things to them and translate to them because that's how you become their friend and that's what they expect from you as their token Asian friend, it's debilitating. And so the the book is about how she decided that she was not gonna be white. It's a really amazing book and I'm happy to, to put my words on the cover of that book.
3: Beautiful. Thank you for spending your evening with us, ladies and gentlemen, via Wen.
2: Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Seattle. Thank you, Seattle Arts and Lectures.
0: That was Viet Tan Nguyen at Seattle Arts and Lectures in 2018. This was Sal on Air, a podcast featuring some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Support for the inaugural season of Sal on Air comes from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. To hear more from Sal on Air, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more conversation and connection, join us for our 2018-19 season, featuring talks by Katherine Boo, Soraya Shamali, Zadie Smith, and more literary surprises. Tickets are available now at lectures.org. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center. Special thanks to the Seattle Arts and Lectures staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to Daniel Spills for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Ruth Dickey, and this has been another edition of SAL On Air from Seattle Arts and Lectures.